Thank you, Mark. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Dan. I serve as the pastor here at FBC. If you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some on the back table. Uh, feel free to grab one of those during service and take it home with you. Uh, we, want, we want you to have that. That's our, our gift to you. We'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. So we continue through Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 17. We're over halfway there, which is an accomplishment, right? We've been in Matthew for a while. Um, and I, I uh, pray that you've been blessed by this portion of God's Word. I know I have, uh, learning a lot about Jesus, about who He is and what He's done. Uh, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13, that's our text this morning. Um, l- let me ask you a, a question. Are you acquainted with Jesus? Are you acquainted with Jesus? Are you familiar with Him? Now, many people, Christian or not, know basic things about Jesus. There's many people who are not Christians who are acquainted or familiar with, with Jesus. They, they may be familiar with some of his teachings, right? You, you may know, turn the other cheek, right? Or, or the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? These are um, things that are, are somewhat common, right? Many people are familiar or acquainted with Jesus. But if you are merely acquainted or familiar with Jesus, if you know some things about him, and that's it, then then you probably don't know who he truly is. You probably don't know who he truly is. And this is true when we are just generally familiar or acquainted with people. We may know a couple things about them, but we don't really know them deeply. Are you merely acquainted with Jesus? The 12 disciples were certainly more familiar with Jesus than most people today. They spent three years of their life going everywhere with him. But even they did not truly grasp the magnitude of who Jesus was during his life on earth. Even they did not quite get all of it. In our text this morning, we see the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, the transfiguration of the Son of God. The disciples witness Jesus' glory and supremacy in a way that they had never before, and their understanding of who Jesus is radically changes. Of course, though we were not there on the mountain that day with them, God's word tells us about the glory of Jesus so that by faith we can understand the magnitude of who he is as well. And it's in the glory and supremacy of Jesus that sinners like us can find hope of being forgiven, adopted, accepted, saved. Let's read our text starting in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray as we come to the Word of God. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, that it is perfect in all that it contains, that it is true and trustworthy in all that we read in it. And Lord, we come this morning to your word to learn about Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we behold him in the, in the text of Scripture, as we hear about him, <clears throat> that you would increase our love and our awe of him. That as we leave here today, even as we hear your word this morning, that we would be humbled before the glory of your Son, and yet drawn near to him at the same time. I pray that you would help me to proclaim your word faithfully and clearly, that you would be glorified and your people would be helped. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Three major things we see in this text this morning. The first is the Son's glory. The Son's glory in verses 1 and 2. Next, we see the Son's supremacy in verses 3 through 8. And finally, the Son's suffering, verses 9 through 13. Now, we've spent the last few weeks in Matthew chapter 16, um, and there's some pretty significant things that have happened. Jesus' identity as the Christ was confessed by Peter. Right? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus describes the triumph of his church, how the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, Peter then gets rebuked by Jesus. Right, for, for trying to say, no, Jesus, you can't go to the cross. Uh, and Jesus teaches his disciples, as Curtis preached last week, about the requirement to take up one's cross, to give up claims on, on our own lives and rights as disciples in order to follow him. It's been a pretty packed chapter. Six days later, we find ourselves at verse 1 of chapter 17. We read that Jesus takes three disciples on a journey up a mountain with him, and the disciples are Peter, James, and John. This is, this is what we, we sometimes call the inner circle. Right? Jesus had 12 disciples, but these three are found in a unique place. Right? They're found having unique and intimate conversations with Jesus that the other nine disciples don't get to have. Right? They really are the inner circle. And as we look at the New Testament, we see these three, Peter, James, and John, playing a more significant role than the other disciples in leading the early church, and in writing scripture as well. So Jesus takes these three disciples and, and nobody else up a high mountain. And it's not really clear which mountain this is. There's a couple options. Uh, if you're a, a geography buff, this will be interesting. And if you're not, hang with me here. Um, if, if Jesus and the disciples had remained in Caesarea Philippi, which is where they were at in chapter 16, um, that they probably went up Mount Hermon. But if they had traveled during the past six days, uh, then they could have gone to Mount Tabor. That's another option. There's a couple other possibilities as well. The particular mountain really doesn't matter too much, but what happens on the mountain does. So the group of four head up this mountain and they arrive at their destination. In Luke's account of this, Luke 9.28, he tells us that they went up the mountain to pray. That's why they're going up there. They're going up there to pray. But while they're praying, the disciples nearly fall asleep. Shocker, right? The disciples nearly fall asleep. But while Jesus is praying, something happens. Verse 2 says that he is 
transfigured before them. And the Greek word Matthew uses here is metamorpho. Metamorpho. Does it sound familiar? Like metamorphosis, right? That's the word we get metamorphosis from, meaning to change form. But we don't want to get confused here because what's happening to Jesus is not like a butterfly, right? Which starts as a caterpillar, then changes into a cocoon, and then changes into a butterfly. That's not what's happening. Jesus is not changing his form. Jesus himself is not changing, but his appearance is. His nature is not altered, but his appearance is. So strikingly, it seems like a total transformation. And we read in verse 2, his face shines like the sun. It's radiant. It's bright. This is uh, maybe an echo of Exodus 34, where Moses spent time in the glory of God, and when he came down Mount Sinai, his face was radiant. It was shining. But there's a difference. Moses' face shone because it was reflecting the glory of God. Jesus' face shines because it's who he is. He is God. Moses is like a glow stick, right? Like a glow-in-the-dark toy. You, you hold it up to the light, it absorbs the light, and then you put it in the dark and it glows. But it has no light in itself, right? It, it dies down. Jesus is like the sun, like the light himself. He is radiating glory. And not only that, but Jesus' clothes, we read, become radiantly white. White as, as, as light. Uh, Mark writes, whiter than no one on earth could bleach them. There's a supernatural and uh, purity and radiance that's emanating from Jesus here. Now, when we read the Bible, we actually see white garments, white clothes, uh, come up a number of times. And whenever they do, it's a symbol of righteousness, of moral perfection, of purity. And here Jesus is on the mount, radiant in white garments. He's revealed to be perfectly righteous. That's what this is symbolically telling us. Jesus is blameless before God. He is perfect, without sin. But there's more than that. There's more than that. When we read the Bible, who is it that's described as being clothed in light? God. God. Psalm 104 exalts God as clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. Human beings are sometimes described as having white garments, but no one but God is described as being clothed in radiant light, like Jesus is here on the mount. Now, Jesus is certainly pure and righteous morally, but this radiant, glorious light is nothing less than divine glory. Nothing less than divine glory. And this is what Hebrews 1.3 describes for us when it says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, Jesus possesses the radiance of the glory of God because he is the Son of God. He has a divine nature. He is not just a man, a person like you and I. He is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, having a divine glory of his own. So what's exactly happening here on the mountain? Is Jesus changing? No. Is this a glorified body? No. That doesn't happen until the resurrection. What is happening is that the radiance of Jesus' deity is being unveiled for a moment. It's being unveiled for a moment. Uh, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, um, if you would like. I'm going to read it, of course. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 
looking at verses uh, 5 through 8, we read this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This tells us a lot about Jesus here. It tells us, one, that before his conception and birth to the Virgin Mary, he was fully divine, eternal, sharing in divine glory from eternity past in the form of God. But in the incarnation, when, when the second person of the Trinity takes on a human nature, like Jesus does, he empties himself, we read. He empties himself. What does that mean? Well, some, uh, some theologians incorrectly think this means he loses part of his deity, that maybe Jesus becomes half God when he's born, right? Or, or maybe he keeps all of his deity, but he loses some of his divine attributes. Maybe he becomes a little less powerful. Right, or a little less holy. That is not what empties himself means. God cannot change. He cannot lose anything he has. He cannot be anything other than he is. No, when we look at verse 7 of Philippians 2, we see how he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant. He actually empties himself through addition. He empties himself through taking on a human nature. The Son of God is eternal in power. He's God. He's fully God. There's no limit to God's power, right? No limit to God's godness. But adding a human nature, right, that is emptying in the sense that a human nature is weak and limited. The Son of God loses nothing of himself, but veils who he is in humanity. It's, it's shrouded. So what's happening on the mountain? The Son's glory, His eternal glory, is revealed for a moment. Right? Imagine if you took a, a brilliantly bright spotlight, like the kind they have at the airport, you know, that you can see from miles away sweeping the sky, and you put it in a bank vault, and you lock the door, and you turn that spotlight on. Are you going to see any of the light coming out of the bank vault? No, you won't. Is it there? Yeah, is it, is it shining bright as ever? Yes, it is. But you won't see it until you open the door. That's what's happening here on the mountain. The glory of Jesus is peeking out as his humanity is, is temporarily unveiling his glory. It's a glimpse into the true nature of Christ. This is an incredible moment for the disciples. They've seen Jesus do mighty works. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him calm the storm. They've heard his authoritative teachings. But this is something completely different. This is something completely different. This is no mere man. This is no mere religious teacher. This is not somebody like Muhammad or like the Buddha or, or like any other religious teacher the world has ever known. This is nothing less than God in the flesh revealing his glory. And this moment of the transfiguration would make such an impact on these three men that they would write about it decades later. For example, John writes in John 1.14, we read it this morning, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
These three men were eyewitnesses to the majesty and glory of the Son, and it changed their lives. Now we, of course, we don't have the same opportunity on earth to see the radiant glory of, of Christ since He's at the Father's right hand. He's in heaven now. But by faith, can we behold His glory in the Word? Yes, we can. By faith, we can perceive His majesty and power. So friend, let me ask you again, are you familiar with Christ? Are you merely acquainted with Him? Or have you beheld His glory by faith? Has your life been changed by His majesty and His power, like the disciples? As we go on in Matthew 17, we see the supremacy of the Son. The supremacy of the Son in verses 3 through 8. Now, I mentioned before the disciples, as they're praying, have nearly fallen asleep. When all of a sudden they see the radiance and the glory of Jesus, right? It's like the sun shining on your eyelids before you wake up. And Luke tells us when they open their eyes fully, they're no longer alone with Jesus. And we see in verse 3 of Matthew 17, there's two others here, Moses and Elijah. And they're talking with Jesus. Now Luke adds another detail here. They're, they're discussing the events to come is what Luke says. Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what they're talking about. Now, these two men, Moses, Moses and Elijah, they were not small potatoes, right? They're not B-list characters in the Old Testament. They were practically legendary to the Jewish people. And they're probably the most two well-respected uh, Old Testament figures to the Jewish mind. After all, Moses led the people out of Egypt in the Exodus. He gave them the law. He brought it down from Mount Sinai. Elijah could uh, arguably be the most successful and greatest prophet in Old Testament history. And to see Jesus here with these two men talking would have been incredible to the three disciples. And for Peter, this is all too much. Right? This is all too much. Poor Peter. This part of Matthew's gospel, he is just, he's having a hard time. He decides this is a good time to speak up. Right? As you have Jesus radiating his glory, talking to Elijah and Moses, Peter says, you know what? I should talk right now. I should talk. I should say something. And so he does. In verse 4, he says, Lord, it's, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, as we'll see in a moment, this is a bit of a problem. This is not what Peter should be doing right now. Um, now, what he says doesn't seem particularly offensive. doesn't seem particularly problematic. Um, but Mark and Luke add some details that help us understand the problem. They say Peter doesn't know what he's saying because he's terrified. He's just babbling. He's just babbling. He's just, ah, I got to say something, right? I don't know. I'm, I'm terrified. He's, he's saying words without thinking about it, which is never a wise thing to do, right? That's never good. We should never do that. He's woken up from a little prayer nap, right? And, and, and there is Jesus in radiant glory with Moses and Elijah. And Peter just has to babble, right? But what's worse is that Peter is is implicitly making Jesus equal with Moses and Elijah. He's making them equal with Moses and Elijah. He's offering them the same dwelling place. He says, hey, you know what, Jesus? I'll make you a tent, and I'll make a tent for Moses and Elijah. I'll make all of you guys the same thing. I'll give you the same accommodations. And to give Peter the benefit of the doubt, maybe he thinks he's honoring Jesus by elevating him to the level of Moses and Elijah, right? Uh, but this is a mistake. This is a mistake. It's a mistake for Peter 
to even imply that Jesus is at the same level with Moses and Elijah. And we'll see why in a moment. And Peter's mistake is not going to go unaddressed for long. We read in verse 5 that as he's speaking, while he's still talking, a bright cloud overshadows them and a voice from the cloud speaks. Now, this is no ordinary cloud. It has brightness to it. And a voice from heaven thunders. Of course, what does the cloud say? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Have we heard this before? Yes, we heard this at Jesus' baptism. A voice from heaven spoke the same thing. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, do Moses and Elijah get this endorsement? They don't. Now, they were great men used by God. But the voice is not talking about them. This endorsement is unique and exclusive to Jesus Christ. He is God the Father's beloved Son. And because of this, He occupies a much different place than Moses and Elijah. Perhaps what Peter should have said is, Hey, Moses and Elijah, why don't we make Jesus a tent? The writer of the Hebrews tells us a lot about Jesus' supremacy. Turn to the book of Hebrews with me for a moment. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. The book of Hebrews is wonderful because it is all about how Jesus is supreme. Uh, Mark read from Hebrews chapter 1, which is about how Jesus is supreme to the angels. But here in Hebrews 3, we see that Jesus is supreme uh, to other figures in the Bible as well. We read, starting in verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful not in, but over God's house as a son. There is a major difference here. Do you hear that difference there? Moses was in God's house as a servant. He was a servant. But Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. And in this culture and in this time, to be the son was the place of prime privilege. The place of prime authority. Because he is the son over God's house, he is supreme even to Moses. Moses is Jesus' servant. And because of that, Jesus carries a unique authority. I flip back just a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 1, where we were at earlier this morning. Looking at the first two verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Elijah. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. We see here, Jesus is supreme to the prophets, they were not the heirs of all things. They did not create the world. But the Son 
who's incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ did. Jesus is not only supreme over Moses, but over Elijah. They were both faithful servants of God, but neither of them were God's son. Uh, Moses and Elijah spoke for God as his servants. They delivered God's messages. They cared for God's people. But Jesus speaks as the Son of God. Uh, for this reason, God the Father tells the disciples, Listen to my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Listen to what He says. Jesus has an authority in Himself that Moses and Elijah do not have. Their authority came from the God whose message they proclaimed. Jesus' authority comes from who he is as the Son of God. So what does this mean? It doesn't mean that Moses and Elijah contradict or are in conflict with the teachings of Jesus. What it means is that Jesus and the New Testament teach us how to understand and interpret the Old Testament. Jesus is the ultimate and final revelation of God. In the Word. Jesus doesn't contradict the law and the prophets. He fulfills them. Now we too are to listen to Jesus as the ultimate authority, especially for our salvation. And what does Jesus say about himself? Well, here's some quotes from Jesus from the Gospel of John. Uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 14.6, uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what is Jesus' message? What does Jesus say? He says it is only through faith in him, through knowing him, that we receive the forgiveness of our sins, that we are reconciled to the God that we have offended and rebelled against for our entire lives, and that we receive the gift of eternal life. That's what Jesus says. He says, there's no other option. It is through me and me alone. But friend, have you listened to Jesus for the salvation of your soul? Have you heard him say, I, Jesus, have lived a perfect life in your place to satisfy God's righteous standard, which you cannot keep. I, Jesus, have died a sinner's death in your place to satisfy God's righteous wrath against your sin. I, Jesus, have risen again to bring eternal life to you. Believe in me and repent of your sin. Have you listened to Jesus Christ? Not just are you familiar with him, but have you listened to him? And maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you've even grown up in church, right? Maybe you know a lot more about Christianity than most. And maybe you're acquainted with Jesus, but have you come to receive the gracious salvation he offers? And you might say, well, yeah, I've heard the gospel. I know Jesus died for sins, but I'm too bad. I'm too bad to become a Christian. Maybe it was hard to even go to church today because you feel that God cannot forgive your sins because they may be so great. Well, friend, you are dead wrong. You are dead wrong. Here's one more incredible thing about what the Father says to Jesus here. Look back at verse, uh, verse 6, verse 5. He says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. Why does the Father say that about Jesus? Well, since God is perfectly righteous and pure, he can only be pleased with those who are perfectly righteous and pure. Now, Jesus is there in white garments. He's perfectly righteous. He's never sinned. He's never done the things that you and I have done. 
to offend God. Every thought, action, deed, emotion, word, every second that Jesus was alive, he loved his Father God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He was a perfect man outside and inside. We can't even fathom that, right? But that's who he was. And you may say, well, yeah, that's Jesus. I don't do that. I don't love God that way. I don't obey him that way. I am a sinner. And that's true. We don't. We don't. But what does God do for sinners like us who believe in Jesus? He justifies us. He justifies us. What does that mean? It means he takes the righteousness of Jesus. He takes Jesus' well-pleasingness and he puts it over us. He covers us with it. And he says, this is how I will now consider you. Because you believed in my son, I'm going to cover you with his perfect righteousness that you could never earn, that you could never attain. I'm going to give that to you as a gift. And do you know what I'm going to give Jesus on the cross? I'm going to give him your sin. And Jesus willingly bears our sin that we would receive his righteousness. That's what God does for sinners. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And So when God says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased, when we believe in Jesus and are covered by his righteousness, then do you know what the Father is saying about you? The very same thing. The very same thing. He is saying, this is my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. Not for your sake, not because of anything that you and I could do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And it may seem too good to be true that God the Father would say that about us. And you say, you don't know everything I've done, and that's true, but God does. And he is willing to declare that over any person who comes to Jesus Christ in faith. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. If you are not a Christian, you can have peace and acceptance and reconciliation with God through Jesus, through trusting him alone to save you. And if you are a Christian, you already have this. The Father's saying it about you right now. Believe what God has said, brother or sister, that through faith in His Son, you are well-pleasing and righteous in His sight. Don't try to add your works to God's grace. Don't try to say, but wait, God, I need to add a little bit of sin in there so that you, know, you have something to hold against me. Don't do it. Believe what God has said. Believe the gospel. The disciples, they, they, they hear this voice. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And they are terrified. And verse 6 tells us they fall on their faces. They are terrified and understandably so. Right? They fall down in reverence before God. But in verse 7, Jesus comes to them. He approaches them as they're, as they're cowering in, in fear for the presence of God. Jesus comes to them and touches them. And I suspect that he touched them so gently and so kindly. And he says to them, rise and have no fear. Rise and have no fear. Only Jesus can say that to sinners. Rise and have no fear. On our own, we have all reason to fear the wrath of God. But when we have Jesus as our Savior, 
his words to us are, rise and have no fear. Charles Spurgeon comments on this and says, the Father's voice made them afraid, but Jesus says, be not afraid. Glorious God, how much we bless thee for the mediator. Words of grace to terrified sinners from the lips of Jesus. And when the disciples look up, what do they see? Only, only Jesus is there. Moses and Elijah are gone, and Jesus remains, the beloved son to whom they should listen, the one who remains forever. Their ultimate authority remains. But interestingly, the, the, the disciples are not done thinking about Elijah, as we see in the next few verses. It's in the context of this conversation about Elijah that we learn more about the son's suffering. Verses 9 through 13. As the four are coming back down the mountain in verse 9, Jesus tells the disciples something that often puzzles us. He tells them not to tell anyone about what they've seen. He says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It's very clear this is a command. This is not a suggestion. Not, hey, you know, might be a good idea to just keep this under wraps. Or if I were you guys, I wouldn't say anything. He says, do not say anything. Don't tell anybody about the vision until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Now, it's not entirely clear why Jesus does this. This is the third time he tells people in Matthew's gospel, don't tell anybody about this, right? The third time. And it's not entirely clear why Jesus does that here. Maybe the disciples didn't understand. They would have misrepresented him. Uh, maybe what they had seen would be too extraordinary for people to believe till after the resurrection. Maybe they would have focused too much on Moses and Elijah and, and not Jesus. We, we don't really know, but I think Craig Blomberg's uh, explanation is best. He says, Christ's mission can be fully understood only after he's completed his ministry of suffering and has subsequently been vindicated. That's in the resurrection. The glimpse of his glory revealed by his transfiguration, like the glimpses given by his other miracles, which generated commands to silence, may not be allowed to hinder his journey to death. And I think that makes sense, right? If the disciples told, hey, I saw Jesus, he was radiating in glory, maybe the people of Israel would say, no, we can't let him go to the cross. They would have tried all the more to make him a king. We don't know. But the disciples have a question for Jesus. And in verse 10, they ask him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, the scribes, of course, were the religious teachers. They were part of that group. They knew the Bible, the Old Testament very, very well. And I think that this question is, is in part prompted by seeing Elijah on the mountain. And the disciples are trying to figure out what the timeline of the Messiah's coming looks like. Because Jesus is there, they kind of figured out he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, but Elijah just went back to heaven. Uh, this could present a problem because the scribes believed the Messiah couldn't come until Elijah came first. And since Elijah hadn't come yet, you would notice if such a thing would happen, right? He hadn't come yet, well, maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. And, and in one sense, this is not a completely unreasonable conclusion. Malachi 4.5 was the verse that talks about this. God says, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Well, God said he was going to send Elijah, so where is he? Where is he? And Jesus has an answer for them. In verse 11, he says, First, Elijah does in fact come. The scribes aren't wrong about this. You can believe what Malachi 4 or 5 says. There's not a mistake in the Bible. He goes on to say, Elijah will restore all things. Literally, this word means to, to restore to an earlier condition, to return to an earlier condition. That's 
That's what Malachi is describing, right? Turning the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That's the restoration Jesus is talking about. That repentance that John preached. But there's a plot twist when we get to verse 12. Elijah has already come. He's already come. I can imagine the confusion of the disciples. Surely they would have noticed if Elijah had come and done all these things they were expecting him to do. But according to Jesus, in verse 12, nobody recognized him when he came. Nobody recognized Elijah when he came. And what's worse, they did to him whatever they pleased. This is a very negative sense to it, a sense of abuse and suffering. So Elijah came, they didn't recognize him, and something horrible happened to him. And, and so also, Jesus says, in the same way, the Son of Man will suffer at the hands of of these people. We see that the they refers primarily to the rulers, whether they be political rulers or religious rulers. And then in verse 13 it clicks. They realize what Jesus is saying. They realize he's speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Now John was not literally Elijah. He's not Elijah reincarnated or something like that. But he's typologically Elijah. They're, they're parallel characters. They're doing the same thing. And John essentially did the same thing as Elijah did. He rebuked kings. He turned the people back to the Lord. He's doing the same kinds of things Elijah did. But what happened to John? The rulers, Herod, the scribes and Pharisees, they did not recognize him. They did not realize the magnitude of John the Baptist's ministry and ultimately John was killed at Herod's hands. And Jesus says, I'm going to be treated the same way. I'm going to suffer and be treated the same exact way. If they didn't recognize John, they would not recognize the Son of Man. And if they killed John, they would kill Jesus too. You see, Jesus knew exactly what awaited him in Jerusalem. He wasn't waiting for details about his mission. He knew what was at the end of his journey. Suffering and death on a cross, and, and yet he pressed on. Yet he pressed on. Why? Because his love for his heavenly Father and his love for his church was greater than his love for himself. Jesus was willing to suffer and die for sinners like you and me, that through faith we would have our sins forgiven and be reconciled to God. He was willing to lay down his own life to save us. Friend, don't be just an acquaintance of Jesus, but come to him believing that he will save you. Believe his message to you. Come to him repenting of your sins that you might enjoy the far greater blessings that are in him. So Jesus knew that his suffering was ahead of him and how they treated John the Baptist was just a foreshadowing of the suffering that Jesus would endure at the hands of sinful men. And this passage is really Interesting in a sense. Because in the first part of the, the passage, we see the glory of Jesus. We see unparalleled majesty. And yet at the end of the passage, we see how this great and glorious Savior is going to be treated. How he is going to willingly give himself up, even to death. What a contrast that is between the two aspects of Jesus, his exaltation and his humiliation. 
And how much more incredible does that make Isaiah's words about what Jesus would endure for us when we consider the glory that we saw on the mount. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, Jesus Christ is the Savior that God has provided for you and for me, for sinners. And though he is great and glorious, he willingly laid all claim to his own life aside that we, through his death and resurrection, could have reconciliation and eternal life through him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we consider the transfiguration, as we consider the suffering that awaits Jesus in Jerusalem, Lord, we confess and we marvel that there is no one like him. That there is no one who is so, on one hand, great in glory and splendor and might and majesty and power and perfection, and yet on the other hand, one who is willing to humble himself lower than we could even imagine, dying a criminal's death on the cross, being made sin because of our sin in our place. And yet, Lord, we rejoice that it is true. We marvel at the humility of Christ and his great love for us. And Father, may that cause our hearts to well up in praise and thanksgiving to our Lord. And Father, I pray if there are those here this morning who do not know Christ or who are merely acquainted with him, Lord, that they would behold his glory, that they would feel the weight of his greatness, but that they would hear his, his call to come to him for the forgiveness of their sins. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you that now Jesus is exalted at your right hand with a name above every other name. No longer in a state of humiliation, but in a state of rightful exaltation, of which the glory of the, the transfiguration is just a, just a drop of the full glory he reveals now. And so, Lord, would you cause us to have great eagerness and anticipation to behold the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, Lord, help us to press on through this life, keeping that blessed hope the glory of our Lord before us. Lord, we love you, and we love our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.